This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Tansay, hello, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm very excited and honored to have Mumalak Kwak here with me today. For those of you who don't know, Mumalak was born in Baker Lake Northwest Territories, and she is one of the youngest members to be sworn into the House of Commons to represent Nunavut for the new Democratic Party. She is a Canadian activist and a politician, and I actually met Mumalak uh, over 10 years ago in Ottawa. We're a part of this youth group called Activate, and we're given little challenges. And at one point, I believe we're even running (laughs) across Parliament Hill. And so it's funny that over 10 years later, we've come full circle, reconnecting in the very same territory, Parliament Hill, seeking and demanding justice from the federal institution. And this is all very important to Momolok's work. And so we talk a bit about her journey, how she got to where she is today, and what's on the horizon for 2020. So without further ado, Mumalak. I know we have all been waiting for this episode, for this conversation with Mumalak for the past couple weeks. And so I'm finally excited uh, to introduce you to Mumalak. Thank you so much. Hi, hi for being here. If you just want to introduce yourself, where you're from. Thank you. Thank you, Matna, Shayla, for having me on here and and good to finally be here. I know we've um, had this in in the works for a little while. Um, So my name is Momina Kakak. I'm a 27-year-old Inuk woman, originally from Baker Lake, Nunavut, um, and I represent uh, Nunavut as a member of parliament um, for the territory, Um, still um, based out of Baker Lake. recently and um, also of course in Ottawa a good chunk of the time um, as a member of parliament and uh, super excited to be here and have our discussion today. And so my first question for you is how how are you doing? I mean I know June for me has been overwhelming. Right now in Canada we are facing um, the uncovering of mass and unmarked graves. And it was also Indigenous History Month. And I know you also gave that speech um, that you're leaving the House of Commons. And so how have you been doing um, the past month? Yeah, I think it's been a really um, heavy time for a lot of Indigenous people across the country when we're talking about um, the uncovering of of these graves. We're not talking about a discovery, but a confirmation and um i'm i'm not sure the right word yet um to use but it's a it's a realization that what we've known all along is true and it's and it's here right in front of us so i think that that heavy feeling has been something consistent um throughout canada and people also i think need to realize that this is a history that often as Indigenous people, we're not even taught um, ourselves. And when we are, um, we're forced to then cope with that information in an unbalanced world um, where our communities still really, really struggle. So that 
speech uh, as well. That farewell speech was a kind. It was a forced speech. Uh, I'm not sure how else to put it. So mm-hmm. um, the federal institution decided this was going to be the slot for the farewell speeches, clearly signaling uh, or waving to an election. And uh, I didn't want to give up that opportunity, a full 10 minutes on how's the common record um, to be able to talk about my experience. I wish it wasn't slotted for that time. I would have loved to have been doing that speech in two years. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was what the liberals put in front of me. And I I didn't want to let that opportunity go. So that's been really interesting and stressful. The media has handled it extremely poorly, saying that I'm stepping down, that I've resigned, which is absolutely untrue and has made my job incredibly difficult because people think I'm no longer working as a member of parliament and and I am. Yeah, I think I was even under the impression that you were like leaving a parliament and I was like, what? Like I literally did not see it coming. And so I definitely was caught off guard just by the way the media handled it. Um, But also I feel like it was very eye-opening for Canadians and even for myself to realize that even when you are in a position of power that you know, your voice maybe is not being valued or heard or being acted upon the way you want it to be. And so I'm curious to know, like, how has that experience been for you being an Inuk person in the House of Commons, which is like a a colonial entity that has done so much harm to our communities? How has that experience been for you? I think um, that's a, a great question. And one that doesn't come up I think as often as it should and I it took me a long time to realize that in this position uh, I'm I don't want to use the word fortunate but I, I feel I should I'm fortunate to feel comfortable and safe in my party enough to voice whatever I need to I have never felt the need, the need to not say anything or uh, that I was speaking out of turn or anything. like I have never felt that way within my party. I've had extremely, extremely honest conversations with Jagmeet that I know could never happen with someone like Trudeau or mm. O'Toole. And I, I know those things um, to be true. But when I walk into the House of Commons, you know, I have 23 other colleagues that support those kinds of views and ideations and values and beliefs that people should truly be equal uh, or treated or given the opportunity to have equity. Mm -hmm. And when I walk into House of Commons, though, I'm walking into dozens, if not hundreds of ideations that willingly think it's okay to take a knee instead of changing laws that can save lives, that think it's fine to, I was on So that farewell speech happened. Everybody thinks I'm stepping down or resigning. I'm not because not barely two days later, I was on PROC committee trying to get Bill C-19 amended to include Indigenous languages on the ballot. Mm -hmm. What that committee said was that it was out of scope, which the committee can determine themselves it is in scope. They can say, yes, we're going to talk about this. And they chose themselves to say no we're not. These are the lawmakers, the law changers. These are people, like said, have power. Um, And to be in a position that's viewed as powerful to 
have that ability to say what needs to be said, but not be taken uh, seriously yeah. to the point where it's killing Inuit, that mm. I'm willingly walking into those kinds of ideations, interacting with them all the time. They're all gathered in a group in front of me, uh, in front of the nation, and they come together and work together to keep oppressive systems in place for Indigenous people. So it took me a long time to a good, I'd say, 14 months or so to really understand what I was walking into when I was walking into that. Mm, yeah, I think we like hope for the best because when you look at the government, it should be for the people. But what I'm seeing is that it's really for a select few with the power. And so in your whole um, experience being an MP, uh, have things been changing or do you find things are getting worse within parliament? Like, do we have things to hope for? Um, yeah. Have you seen any progress within your term? Mm, that's an an interesting question. I think we can look at Jody Wilson Raybould's experience, and uh, she's recently announced that she's uh, not going to be running again. Um, and Jody's been in there for a while and has gone absolutely through it with the Liberal government. And all she was trying to do was her job and to stay honest and true in, in herself and in what her responsibility and her role was. And she got put through the ringer for it. She got mm -hmm. completely, she went through weeks or months of lawyers and trying to figure out what she could or couldn't say in public. Like, I couldn't imagine being put in a position like that where you're the first Indigenous Minister of Justice. And... It it ends out the way the way it did, and um, man, power to her! Like she ran as an independent and won. Like when that mm -hmm. came out, I was like, "Oh, look at look at JWR! Like go Jody! Like good for her!" Because this institution just and and it, it I guess yeah, there is some hope and and progress because. When I look back at my term and I think about being in that building, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I don't like being there. Mm, but the mm -hmm. 30 minutes I did feel like, damn, this is my space, was that Jody Wilson-Raybould's swearing-in ceremony where it was just filled with Indigenous people and all regalia, and it didn't at all feel like you were in the House of Commons. And I forgot I was in the House of Commons, and I just felt like, wow, this is what it feels like to sit around like Indigenous royalty. Like, this is the feeling of, <laughs> I belong, I belong here. And after the speech Jody reached out and she was like, we can make space. We can belong here. And like, she's shown that. And although I have a certain perspective and feeling about my term and, and the House of Commons and the institution itself, I think that, and I hope that people are encouraged by seeing that, oh, somebody thought that they could couldn't make space or couldn't have space for themselves and still were able to accomplish big things and mm -hmm. start big things, start conversations. If I actually want to do that, maybe I will actually try and pursue that. Um, because I would never set out to be a politician. I was asked to be. And um, so I, I think there's, there's hope in, in seeing a change of some sort.
Mm, I thought you brought up my next question is, um, I know that it was never really your intention to be in your position. And like you said, you, you got asked to be a politician. And so what was that experience like for you? Like, what were you doing before uh, being an MP? And how was that transition? Um, a lot of the work I've done uh, before was always about um, helping other people, particularly in employment and human resource management. I'd done a number of other things since I graduated in 2011 and been uh, coaching and taking players out on tournaments since I was 17 and a lot of volunteering and uh, those kinds of all different kinds of anything I could sign up for that was going to get me out of town. Basically, <laughs> I was uh, attempting to to get on that. And um, I had moved to back to the territory, back to Khalid from Ottawa, actually, and um, was taking business admin, human resource management when the college strike happened and decided to move back up. And uh, worked in suicide prevention mm. in the quality of life secretariat with the government of Nunavut and uh, lost a friend to suicide and kind of found myself wondering what I was doing in that position and left um, and then found myself with Nunavut Dungavik Incorporated or the uh, Territorial Inuit uh, Advocacy Organization and uh, in that, I was an Inuit employment officer. So a part of the Nunavut Agreement, Article 23, talks specifically to Inuit employment. So that was basically my baby, um, trying to ensure and uphold uh, different levels of federal, uh, territorial, and municipal governments to have that equal representation level of Inuit within the workforce mm. that you see within their uh, wherever they they are, so Nunavut is 84, 85% uh, Inuk. So that's the level of uh, Inuit representation we should see in the workforce in these different levels um, of governance. And uh, I was barely there two months, I think, and um, had just received a message from a friend who I didn't realize was a part of the. Uh, Nunavut NDP Electoral District Association and he said he wanted to have a conversation about politics and I was like you're asking the wrong person if you want an opinion about Trudeau like get the like no thank you I got no time to talk about that man I got nothing you're talking to the wrong person about politics and he was like no it's it's not about Trudeau or the liberals but if you don't want that discussion like I don't want to pressure you I don't mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't want to put that on you and I was like well let's see what he has to say like it doesn't hurt to have a discussion and uh, so I think it was a Saturday or Sunday morning and he came over and he was like so I'm a part of this group and I was like oh dear where is this going <laughs> and he was like at, at the end of the conversation I said okay just so we're clear you're asking me if I'd be interested in running for the new Democrat Democrat Party for member of parliament for Nunavut. He was goes, yes. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let me think about that one. Um, I used a little bit more colorful language before and um, then had done my research on Jagmeet. That was my number one thing. I couldn't run for a leader I didn't believe in. Mm -hmm. So I, I did really, really heavy research on Jagmeet, who has had his own 
barriers he's had to overcome in his life that are very similar to a lot of things that Indigenous people experience all the time, too. And he wears a turban. He's visually uh, a minority. He's visually uh, racialized. And those kinds of things, I I would assume he has had to <laughs> go through things in life and figure out how to navigate it. Um, and of course, I just, I couldn't run for someone I didn't feel I could have a normal human conversation with. Mm-hmm. And so after doing research on that and figuring I can put that trust in in him, uh, having a conversation with my mom, who was kind of like, do you want me to jump up and down like you do crazy things <laughs> all the time? Um, we support you. We love you no matter what. So you're, you're going to do what you want, regardless of what I say. So mm-hmm. you should just like, what do you have to lose? You should just go for it. Why not? And I really didn't, I, I didn't, I don't have kids. I don't have a mortgage or anything like that. Um, very much student style living if you will um and being only in whatever my mid-20s at the time um there was really nothing for I could afford to not work for six weeks Mm -hmm. and uh, there was nothing else for me to lose and um so I said sure like why not at least shake something up uh I mean the ultimate goal is of course to to get elected but if I'm not going to get there, at least I can have the other candidates give them a run for, for that spot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was one of the questions that actually came in is, would you have any advice for Indigenous women who are Inuit women who are wanting to get into politics or uh, run for the House of Commons? Yeah, I think the most important um, part is finding your foundation of support, finding people that will treat you like you at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month, whatever, when you need that, that recharge, that's something that I didn't do. And I think a lot of Indigenous people, we're not good at stopping and taking care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're so concerned about people around us all the time. And how do we help each other in community that I think a lot of the time we we fail to stop and reflect and and say how am I doing, um, and that definitely was something that I struggled with. I mean, I was very public about my two month um, uh, mental health leave after that burnout, mm-hmm. and that was working way too much, and not turning to that that support, not turning to a space where I was moving up just Mumilak and not Mumilak the MP. Mm-hmm. And so day in, day out was just Mumilak the MP, Mumilak the MP. And it exhausted me. And uh, I would, that's the number one thing I would suggest. And you know, people ask like, if I'm second guessing myself, should I even da da da? And I'm like, yes, second guess yourself, triple guess yourself, quadruple guess yourself. And if you're still feeling like this is something that you want to do, then do it. But it's okay to completely question yourself. I wish I did because then I would have realized the kind of ideations I'm walking into when I'm walking (laughs) into this building and I might have been a little bit more prepped. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong in in those kinds of things, uh, but ultimately finding that support and finding finding your group, finding your people, understanding and being okay with that, like not being the same people you thought it might be 
Yeah. Um, becoming a public figure like can really change relationships and really change how people view you, how people want to interact with you. Don't be discouraged by the fact that you in your mind think your support is going to look a certain way and mm-hmm. that might fall through. Like that's fine. You just got to yeah. go and, and find support elsewhere. Um, I've definitely been put in positions where I, I never thought I would see or hear something come out of someone's mouth who I thought I could trust so much. And that's how life goes. Sometimes it doesn't matter if I'm in this position or like regardless. Um, But it's finding, finding that support and and being okay with like having to go and find it too. Yeah. I think that's so important. And I think, yeah, your system starts changing around you when you yourself are changing and evolving. And I think some people get um, kind of attached to like a preconceived idea or a story of who you may be. And then you're like, no, this is like who I was five years ago or three years ago or two months ago, but this doesn't align with me anymore. And so I think as Indigenous people, like we're so used to um, adapting to the world around us, but also coming back to our community and coming back to kinship and coming back to relationship. And so I'm curious to know, because you have given like a lot of speeches and you have like definitely probably challenged people's perceptions and also like won people's hearts over. And so I'm curious to know, like, what is your, um, what does it look like behind the scenes? Like before you're giving a speech, like what do you have to set up yourself to feel comfortable giving that speech? Do you have any uh, rituals or routines? What does that look like for you? I feel like I'm at my counseling session. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to know. I was just talking to her and I'm very open (laughs) about this stuff too because I I take a, I have trauma-informed counseling and my counselor is great and um, really helps me um, reflect. And I've noticed um, as time goes on and the more publicity um, or public awareness I get, the longer it takes me to work myself into a good headspace and then decompress after something. And I can complain. Um, it It's the social media world, though. I don't live that right. world. I don't live in a world where... Um, I And I used to, and that very much contributed to the burnout as well before I had staffs where I could put all that um, stuff onto onto their plate. The post, the words are mine, but I'm not mm-hmm. posting them. I'm not engaging right. with the content or the comments or I'm or I try not to. Um, and th- there could be a post where there are absolutely no negative things. But to me, it's an immense amount of pressure to continue to do more to stay in that role, to stay, like, do as absolute much as I can, even though I'm one human in one position. Mm-hmm. And if I had the support of an organized community, if you will, like, those things happen. Um, I mean, you see support from my party, you see support from other organizations, but it's a it's a really lonely space to wake up and and think about, okay, how am I going to try and get this message through to a national or international level and to be thinking Mm -hmm. at that height all the time, Um, but to kind of turn around at the end of the day. And it's it's a really lonely job um, 
with that kind of like people changed their kind of perception on of me um mm-hmm. and so the press conference for example that was a a good probably 12 hours of just mentally prepping and I didn't sleep well that night I yeah it was very overwhelming almost I was very much working myself into a headspace of you're going to be talking about a man who raped many Inuit children and these children are now elders some Mm -hmm. have passed away and they have been calling on having something done for years Um, I've gotten messages since shortly after being elected Um, that question came up specifically about Revoir during campaign how are you going to if you are selected, bring him back from France so that he can face justice. And Mm -hmm. um, so here I am almost two years later actually doing that. But that's how long uh, some things can take to work up to get up to that national spot. But people have been asking for these things for a long time. People have passed away and never seen that justice, even though they were one of the first people to publicly come out about how this man sexually assaulted them. And um, starting these trickle effects that need to happen, um, but also never seeing those wounds heal before they're actually uh, gone. Um, so I'm like, I'm here you know, kind of gearing myself up thinking about all these kinds of uh, things for a good chunk of time. And I find the longer I stay in this position, the longer it takes me to prep. And then the press conference is, is great. I had so much fun with Charlie. Um, like it, it, we rocked it. And, uh, but then after that, it kind of, that weekend, it took me a whole weekend to kind of it was. I felt very depressed after, especially with the continuation of the the graves being uh, found, and people kind of just people know the numbers two fifteen, seven fifty one, and that's it. People are mm-hmm. kind of like already done with that conversation. We're like, we've just started it. Like we've just yeah. started finding kids. What do you mean? It's not a thing to be discussed anymore. Um, so that and and then like. Even though I'm I'm in those difficult spaces, in the end, it's always you got to decide to just do it. Get up and do it. Like, you got to just go. Like, it's up to me in my brain to just figure it out. And um, Mm -hmm. there is, of course, I think, external things that always help. But at the end of the day, I understand, like, I got to exercise. I got to eat as best as I can. I got to take time off work. Like, it's my responsibility to take care of myself. And that's always Mm -hmm. what it comes to. But it just, it takes sometimes a bit to get there now. Yeah, well, and we put so much pressure on um, Indigenous women, Inuit women. We put so much pressure on our women and we put them on these pedestals almost. And like, if we're not allowed to fail the same way as like a non-Indigenous person is allowed to fail, like if we make a mistake, we're going to be like, we'll have to own up to that mistake, which which is fine. It's all about accountability. But people don't recognize like when you are giving a speech, you are in direct relation to that community. You are in direct relation to that trauma. You're in direct relationship to those experiences. And so it's not just a speech 
like, I don't know, probably other people in parliament give with like no emotional attachment. It's like you are actually bringing in like the past to the present and hoping for a better future. And so is justice um, something that can be done within the federal institution in regards to having these priests um, held accountable? And why do you think that it hasn't happened yet? money i think honestly a a lot of it is um it would cost a lot could you imagine if the federal government had to and they should like this so weird to say but if they had to provide basic human rights and justice like if they absolutely had to that would cost them billions like i couldn't even put a number on probably trillions of dollars if they were going to ensure every uh, community that was majority indigenous had clean drinking water, had affordable mm-hmm. living. Like to make Nunavut accessible and livable for the people there would cost so much money. Uh, and I think that's a, a huge factor. Um, we saw it in as early as the uh, 1960s, where in the 1920s, when TB was down. Uh, in southern parts of Canada, spreading like wildfire, and First Nations uh, and Métis individuals were filling up hospital beds and hotel rooms um, and had either passed or had gotten better uh, in the 1960s. Those hotel beds, uh, hospital beds, sanatoriums, people didn't want to see those jobs lost. So instead um, of moving the health services up north, the Canadian institution a uh, federal institution decommissioned two hospitals in Nunavut so that Inuit were forced to come down south so that those employees can keep their jobs. Those hospital beds, those sanatoriums and hotels can stay staffed up mm. and those people mm. can keep making their money down south. Inuit have always been an economic chip, continue to be. I had a friend come down who needed an MRI on their knee. Mm-hmm. You can't get an MRI in Nunavut, have to come down here. Well, that one seat on the flight, that hotel bed, that hospital bed, how many employees are behind each and every one of those things? And how many of those are not making money that come into Nunavut? But this individual is in Nunavut. So mm-hmm. like all the time we're seeing different ways things play out so that indigenous people just have no shot, no chance. Mm. How, how are we supposed to, I mean, like, look at the things you and I have done. We, and we've had felt we've had to leave home to do them. I mean, I couldn't Mm -hmm. go and take human resource management, even if I wanted to in the territory, like there's no way to do it. Um, And even if, you know, the online option, yeah, right. If there's a blizzard, if it's too foggy, you think I'm going to be connecting to the internet in Nunavut? No way. Like, don't even get me started on that. So I think it's, yeah, there's a lot of things that people just, they, they look and they have one particular view and don't really see all the other things that go on uh, to get there and, and even go on at the time. 
Yeah. And I think it's like lack of um, like, I've never been to Nunavut. So like, I think for me, even I still have a lot to learn about Inuit people and Inuit communities. And I have no idea what uh, each one of you have experienced because I've never experienced it or I've never had a connection to the land over there. And so what would you want uh, listeners to know about, you know, Nunavut or Inuit people or your community um, that they may not know already? Inuit are such sharing people. Oh my goodness. Um, if someone tells you to eat, you better be getting ready to sit down and eat because that's the only <laughs> answer there is when you walk into a home. And um, I think there's quite a few different, what I call norms. Um, I think one of the biggest glaring ones is that we don't have trees. So... Mm. We we kind of or I refer um, it to as a snow globe. It feels like you can see for such a long period of time, whereas down south you don't have that same feeling. That same mm-hmm. you kind of feel more enclosed, and that can be very different. That can very much change your perspective on everything, and I think people don't realize that. Um, but. I I guess in terms of like what would I want people to know, um, there's a lot of people in the North that are in difficult situations because the federal institution has forced their families into those situations. Mm. And a lot of the time, we don't even realize that we're in it. I was laughing with my best friend the other day, uh, watching a documentary about happiness and about how uh, dopamine, uh, when it gets released, it's like this kind of natural high. And I looked at him and I was like, no wonder why we could make it through high school. Like we were running from practice to practice to practice. I, I was on the ice seven days a week in grade 11 and 12. And that was constantly almost like, I think, running to the next high. Like we were mm. always in sports and we could survive all the craziness going on around us because we were had that ability um there my hometown is one uh, that has a higher rate of suicide and Mm -hmm. what i usually talk about is when uh younger men stop sports and that really just kind of um confirmed for me like we go through you know high school where you might be on the court or on the ice or whatever five seven days a week and then all of a sudden you're not on it whatsoever um and those that dopamine is no longer being released you're no longer having this natural high going on um Mm -hmm. but that you know we see those certain patterns uh certain spikes and um although people are in a lot of turmoil and sometimes quite often don't realize it. I really didn't. Although I was had a safe home, there was a mm-hmm. lot going on around me. And I really didn't realize it until I was like 22 or 23, just how crazy it was for all of us um, and all the things going on. So there's that intergenerational trauma, I think is extremely present, but people mm-hmm. aren't necessarily super aware and, I think that's that's okay. Sometimes it can be a bit, it can be more difficult to be aware of what you're in when you're in it. Yeah. And, but I think that Inuit are such 
caring and giving people love to share. Like, just ask questions and oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, we just love to share and want to show you everything um, about how we eat, what we eat, what we dress, how we sew, how any, like, it's just, I guess, getting the conversation started, like we are here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you touched on a few really good points there. And I have to, like, I relate so much because I didn't even, you don't even recognize, like, how maybe dysfunctional your world is growing up until you, like, leave home mm -hmm. and then you experience, like, and see and witness other people's lives. And you're like, oh, wait, like, this, my life was nothing like this. And yeah, you, and we also lack, like, for me, um, I'd even know what options were available because all I had known was what I grew up in. And that was usually around survival instincts and just, you know, getting by. Um, but I feel like now we're in a time of, um, yeah, I want to say like, I'm hopeful for the future because I also see Indigenous, Inuit, Métis people all reclaiming like their culture, their language, their protocols, um, and also being in direct relation, like you said, like speaking to one another. And so I'm curious to know, like, when you are feeling lethargic or overwhelmed, or like you said, when you're feeling burnt out, you know, what are the practices? What keeps you um, sane and in your power? Um, I think there's um a number of tools i've been trying to develop um mm -hmm. when you brought up june yeah the whole like uncovering of those graves really like i and i even knew like the press release was coming out and i was crying before i was even listening to it like just a very daunting ugly feeling of what canada was finally realizing or, or that's what it felt like um, mm -hmm. but I try and do, um, beating. So I get my, my puppy, um, very soon. I'm super excited. And I eventually want to, uh, have beaded collars for her. And it's an extremely great way for me in particular to practice my patience. Um, so that's something that I've been really trying to work on this summer and just really trying to find that more like settle down and take a moment take a breather um i have my fish i have my cat um i really enjoy my gardening and even weeding is kind of not numbing but it's it's a repetitive task that you can um kind of not necessarily think too hard about and um i i enjoy those kinds of things and just trying to be more structured i mean we we give kids playtime, bedtime on all those kinds of stuff and they thrive <laughs> off structure and I believe <laughs> I would thrive off structure as well. So I'm working on um, developing more of a, you know, do groceries on a certain day, do laundry yeah. on a certain day type thing <laughs> instead of just kind of willy nilly shooting the whatever at life and hoping it works out. <laughs> um, so definitely trying to create more structure in my life and and more a lot more balance a lot more um calmness is something i'm really working on too well and that was one of the um like most asked questions is like what do you hope for um after coming out of your position in parliament um when there's another election like what are your plans for the future um i hope um we get to see the seat stay orange because i mean regardless of who that is at least you know that that's a party that 
can have the ability to speak truth and mm, reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope the seat stays orange and I look forward to supporting um, who that may be. Um, but I really don't know what's next. I have a whole bunch of ideas. Um, I'm talking to a drag queen right now about doing a video and um, would love to um, find grant money from mm, that yeah. and be able to show that kind of um, that unity and that allyship um, with the uh, LGBTQ plus community. And uh, I really, um, well, as um, you know, and maybe some of your viewers saw we were out in Victoria um, and I got put in drag for the first time and <laughs> I can't like, oh, I can't tell you <laughs> what that did to me. Oh, my gosh. It was so amazing. I had so much fun with Mackenzie. Um, so we, we've been kind of chatting and um, but there are also so many other things that make me excited. Um, the law program out in uh you at UVic um, sounds like a space that is very much um, in the works of being indigenized and having that less of a Western societal feeling of, of mm-hmm. uh, post-secondary. So maybe that's something uh, to look into. Um, I'd love to have a YouTube channel and just take a little bit of time and figure out my my stuff. Um, I'd love to learn sign language and work with the deaf community. I'd love to work with youth. Like there's so many things that there's I could, so many avenues. Yeah, there's so many things I could get so excited about. Um, ultimately, I'd I'd love to find funding to do a YouTube channel for six, twelve months or so, and then be able to in that time alongside of that figure out what i want to do next um yeah and i hope that people can see that whatever they give me i can take and turn into something Mm -hmm. great great i mean i was not intending on running for an mp and look at what i've done so yeah i'm just excited to take a bit of time and um hopefully figure out what those next big steps are i really don't know though what they are yeah well i think like you already did the first step of like choosing what's best for you and like how how you want to live your life because like you're saying you were kind of just forced into these positions and so taking back your power and deciding like what's best for your autonomy and what's best for your life and you touched on allyship a few times uh just now and so i'm curious to know like what would be your advice for um non-indigenous followers out there to support indigenous communities and to be allies uh towards us there's so much documentation out there. Stop asking us what you can do to be of support because it's out there. Go read the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Pick one and do it. <laughs> do, <laughs> do that. There's all this documentation out there. Stop immediately going to Indigenous people and expecting us to share us with you. Like mm. there's some sort of entitlement to oh we're learning about indigenous people so Shayla tell me about your whole life and educate me about everything that's (laughs) not how it works there is a thing called google tiktok Mm -hmm. facebook true Um, there's all these documentations out there the truth and reconciliation commission that's an extremely easy place to start i specifically talk about the truth commission which is kind of the 
Baffin region kind of specific, similar to the the TRC. There are Mm. documents out there that have calls to action already. Go and find those calls to action and learn how to do them. Stop immediately asking Indigenous people. I mean, we're here Mm. for questions, but there are some things like I just, I can't, like people are like, how much is a flight from da-da-da? And I'm like, Use Google. What am I <laughs> yeah, like? Yeah. For? Like, get like, stop. I'm yeah. not gonna answer that. Like, there's certain things to go and figure out yourself. Um, yeah, and show up yeah. and get your other white friends to show up. Yeah. Well, speaking of showing up, um, how can people support this petition uh, that you're currently um, advocating for to have an independent prosecutor? Is it just um, signing? Is it emailing? How can people support? Yes. So if you go to any of uh, these, our social media pages, uh, specifically, I know it's in Instagram. I'm sure it's in all of them, but there's a link in in that bio for sure. Um, And it will take you to a page that opens up with me and Charlie's face on it. And um, it explains that we're calling on Attorney General David Lametti to investigate crimes against Indigenous peoples carried out through the residential quote-unquote school system. So when you open that up, it just asks for a little bit of information, and then it has a pre-typed email already in there with the four specific calls to action uh, that talk to that appointment of a fully funded special prosecutor to investigate the historic crimes and cover-ups of abuse committed uh, against Indigenous people in Canada. And it and it goes into a little bit more detail there and you just fill out a bit of information, click a button. It does not take that long at all. That button then shoots off an email to uh, David Lametti's office. Then there is 100% the power to ensure that this can be done. David Lametti mm-hmm. office pushing this off onto the RCMP, that's not true. They have the power to ensure that this appointment can be made. So when we're hearing that they can't do anything about it, that's that's a lie. Um, so right now we're just almost at 16,000. We're hoping to, to get up to 17,000 and always more the merrier. And um, looking at uh, the next steps of how we can amp this up. Sweet. Yeah. Make sure you uh, do everything that Moomalog just said. And you did touch on um, the next steps. And so I'm just curious to know, like, how would you define Indigenous futurism or Inuit futurism? If you could reimagine a future built for us, what would that look like? Ah, so beautiful. Um, (laughs) I have wondered that. And I picture like an interesting probably weird to some people mishmash of like avatar slash star wars when they're like meeting in the big room and they are all sitting in their (laughs) little pod and they all like come from different parts of the huge galaxy and they all have their discussions um or like in lilo and stitch when the big thing in the galaxy (laughs) so i picture something like that with a like avatar twist where we fully understand that we are one with the system Mm. um where we have like could you imagine like water turbines that produce electricity that somehow can still work next to whales still work next to migration Mm. still like so like this kind of like cohabilitation uh, the ability to um exist without being uh, inferior to 
the the rest of the ecosystem and having it kind of like like that's i i picture kind of like a avatar slash star wars feel um and i think <laughs> star wars because we all need to come together and and communicate um and i don't see that happening in a way um i mean the house of commons kind of is like that but it's definitely not a space that's made for everyone um mm. whereas something like star wars it's a space for all species that <laughs> uh, are a part of the galaxy and um I like to think that our world can actually look something like that. And I, I often think and wonder if we could take every floor level surface in the world and lie it flat, how many times would we cover the earth over and over again? How greedy are humans to just constantly pile, 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 pile on when we need to be one with this world like we're we're so royally messing it up and it's phenomenal how you if you take out any animal the system would break if you take out humans the system would flourish and that's mm. just like how much we like need to change our perspective of how we interact with the world and there's no way the federal institution could ever get there um mm -hmm. to me that's that's what a you know, imagine Inuit being able to still drive snowmobiles and Hondas and whatever for hunting, but those things are powered by solar or by wind or with the green energy and um, be able to train Inuit to make homes so that Inuit know how to uh, make structures and are now building homes in a way that they see fit. I don't think we would see your standard home look um mm -hmm. you can have that in the north it's it's not uh sustainable and people just don't have the skills don't have the availability to that right to opportunity and i think if we gave that we would see much more unity not just with ourselves but with, with the earth, earth as well. well yeah it's coming back to relations and coming back to um looking at each other as like equals there's no hierarchy within the systems it just kind of is and so when we look at our relations oftentimes we are looking at uh matriarchy and the matriarchs and so i'm curious to know how would you define matriarchy and are there matriarchs you are currently inspired by um that's a good question. I had uh, my uh, forehead tattoos done a few weeks ago, and that was one of our big conversations was, we need a Inuktitut word for matriarch. And there are, like, of course, one for a woman, and, but one specifically for that meaning. And um, I think there's a number of women um in the territory that are and across Canada that are really making moves. And I mean, like, look at Mary Simon just got uh, announced yeah. as governor general. And she's you know, from Inuit Nungangat and she's been uh, involved in politics for a number of years. She was schooling Pierre Trudeau back in the day. <laughs> and here she is. As oh my God. Like that's full circle. That's, that's awesome. And those kinds of amazing things are happening. Um, you know, people like me are coming in and creating influence people like you. Um, I don't think when we are growing up, we had people like us to look up to, um, I think in particular the um, film 
and um, our industry, people like Lackaluk William Bathory, uh, people like uh, Stacy McDonald, uh, that are doing some really, really amazing, cool things and creating that visibility in in uh-huh. circles and beyond. And that's very much uh, led by women, and it's really, really empowering. And you can see um, in within the territory the pieces of like healing and community involvement and engagement oftentimes those are led by women um Mm -hmm. when when you look at it uh and look at who sparked the idea or started the idea um usually it was some ladies sitting around and uh, (laughs) some aunties figuring stuff out so um i think that they're yeah we need to figure out an ineffective word for it but there are there are so many uh matriarchs well, there's so much to look forward to. I feel like, like you're saying, there's so many of us um, doing great work. And again, there wasn't really these role models or people um, that we had to look up to when we were younger. But I feel like that that's shifting and people, non-Indigenous people are now waking up to the realities of like how cool and how much they have to learn from each and every one of us. And so how can uh, listeners support your work moving forward? Um, if they can follow you, how can they support Yeah, so uh, social media, of course, is always um, a great tool to uh, find uh, information and and stay in touch. Um, So following on uh, those platforms is always the easiest way. And then, of course, there's the parliament contact um, and that email. And my thing is always, always stay tuned, stay with me, stay updated. So we just recently uh, did a press conference with uh, Charlie Angus and working on um, next steps and just encouraging that messaging and having more Canadians understand what we are calling for and asking Canadians to also help us with calling out for it. So um, uh, people can definitely help by signing that petition. And I did a live yesterday and I said I challenge everybody to call uh, out five friends to do that as well. So it's great that people want to do their part, but I would ask them to take it a step up and have them encourage other people to do their part as well. Yeah, I mean, that's it's it's about creating the ripple effect. Uh, thank you so much, Mumalak, for sharing your story, for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge. Uh, make sure you follow her on Instagram, Twitter, social media. Make sure you do the calls to action. Thank you so much. If you just have any last words. Hi, hi. Matna, thank you so much for having me, Shayla, and, and this space and opportunity for discussion. And um, I'm sure this is one of many oh yeah (laughs) this is the first there's so much we can i really kind of not had to bite my tongue by any means but like had to kind of stop myself and like "Mm, let's not go down that rabbit hole because they they can like (laughs) talk for hours about that one specific thing oh Um, yeah so i'm just i'm super excited for continuing the conversation and and having people uh see more about what what it's like to watch two matriarchs work together yeah this is just the beginning this is just the first episode out of several so if you have any questions just know that you can ask me you can also ask me uh thank you for joining have a blessed day y'all i hope you enjoyed today's episode and i would love your feedback 
Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0H at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you.